I'm Greg Zen, and you're listening to Startup Zen, a show for leaders, innovators, and high performers seeking to achieve greater well-being and mastery over life and career. Every week, we'll feature candid conversations with founders, authors, and thought leaders as they share their personal experiences, advice, and strategies for optimizing daily life and work. My guest today is Arvid Call. Arvid is the co-creator of Feedback Panda, a SaaS that achieved 55,000 monthly recurring revenue before selling for a life-changing amount of money. He also created Permanent Link and is the author of two highly actionable books, Zero to Sold and The Embedded Entrepreneur. I regularly recommend these amazing guides to the founders I mentor. Arvid also shares his knowledge with the Bootstrapped Founder podcast, blog, and newsletter, and on Twitter at Arvid Call, and in his course, Find Your Following. All right, Arvid, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. <laughs> well, let's just get right to it. Tell me a little bit about what was life like for Arvid before Feedback Panda? I was just a software engineer doing software engineering things. Like I had a fairly traditional career in software engineering. I went to university, although the non-traditional part probably is that I dropped out of university for computer science at some point. But that was World of Warcraft. That is not related to anything else. Found jobs doing software work for a diverse range of businesses. I always really like coding. So as a software engineer, I just look for interesting projects. I spent some time in San Francisco, funny enough, in Silicon Valley. I was invited there by a VC-funded company and I learned like kind of learned the ropes of how to build software for real in in that place like in a pretty high intensity environment which I left it was like a pretty much a remote position and I also work from Germany I left that after a year because I was mid burnout because mm-hmm. uh, it was not just high intensity it was too high intensity that's kind of where I noticed that anything I've done before at that point uh, was not getting me to my capacity but that job did because it involved like working 12 hour days, startup, everybody has to come early and leave late. And sometimes even the weekend was when we worked and there was no, no distance really between the work and socialization. Like you didn't really talk about anything else but work. So that was my life back in yeah, 2012, 2013. After that, back in Germany, I really laid low for a whole year. Like I, I distinctly remember that I was so fortunate at that point that I lived close to my grandma's place, just like a kind of across the street, really a two minute walk, if at all. And she would feed me like she would make food for me because I just did not have the energy anymore. That that was the level that I was at for maybe half a year. And I kind of crawled back into being able to do stuff and having had a solid income at that point, also for the first time in my life, really, because that was a well-paid job and never had a good job or any job before that. That meant I had some time to just figure out what I wanted to do. And I then started a couple projects with friends and I moved to moved around. I moved to Berlin from Dresden, my hometown in Saxony in Germany, moved to Berlin, the big city where everything happens. And I built projects with other friends. And from there, I kind of found my way into a real job again, like a paid position as a software engineer, did some consulting before that. And that's kind of where I was. So I came from this high intensity Silicon Valley job into this valley of despair right after it. And after that, I just slowly clawed myself back to being able to work. And then I did some consulting. And then I found a cool project that I started 
at as a consultant and they took me on as an employee and then that worked for a couple of years that was at hamburg in germany and that was the point where we daniela and i my girlfriend and i envisioned feedback panda so i, I kind of burned myself out then I slowly rekindled my interest to stay with the fire metaphors here. And then the spark, again to those metaphors, then the spark of Feedback Panda happened. And that essentially changed my life to being able to build a business, sell it for a lot. And then now do whatever I want to do, which I'm not quite sure what it is, but I do stuff. And that's where I'm at right now, right? So back then, regular software engineer, just two, three years into working for a company in Germany. Before we move forward on that, I just wanted to check and see, was there anything that helped you kind of claw your way back at that point before Feedback Panda, but you mm -hmm. were coming from this trial of despair, mm -hmm. you said that you progressively kind of got yourself back into the game. Was there anything in particular that helped you out or? Yeah, what you, I kind of hinted at it, I think, and having family close by that I, were really supportive of seeing where I was, like understanding the kind of physical impact that the psychological stress level had on me, like seeing me essentially depleted right in front of them. And then understanding that instead of trying to motivate me to do better <laughs> or do more, they just had to motivate me to do anything, right? So that they understood what they needed to do. And then I think what helped me was to kind of detach from work for a bit. I know this is probably not good advice for anybody in this situation, particularly not if you're living paycheck to paycheck, right? That's usually a, that's kind of the reason why you're getting into this kind of burnout state to begin with, because you're trying to chase something that you cannot accomplish, but you have to, because there are these underlying fundamental reasons for you to, to kind of be in the hamster wheel and stuff. But if I just think about it, it was really like having friends and family close by that helped having distraction. I was reading a lot at the time, I think too. I read a lot of fiction, kind of immersed myself in worlds beside work because as a software engineer, the world around you is full of cool projects and cool technology and other software engineers and best practices and new languages to learn and new frameworks to try out. If you're interested in that, that is a fun thing to do. Like every day, something different, ha different happens to you and it's great. But if you are trying to recover from being too involved in this, I didn't want to have anything to do. I think there's like a year that I completely skipped following up on trends or interesting things in the technology field that I was in. Only after that, I kind of recovered that knowledge and just kind of looked into it retroactively. But at that time, didn't care. No hacker news for me, no Reddit, no all these things. Just, yeah, somebody else will read and write these things. I don't need to do it. But yeah, like any anyone in their mid-20s, I played computer games and I'm a big fan of miniature wargaming. We should talk about this for hours. <laughs> no, but I'm a big fan of like making little miniatures and painting them and not the, much the gaming part, but really the finesse and the artistry and like painting things. I, I always Craft. enjoyed that. Craft, yeah, that's really what it is. That That has always been a fun hobby of mine and that grounds me. So even though they call it, I think that there's some people call this the nerds cocaine because <laughs> these miniatures are so expensive because the resin and the plastic and the metal that the companies that create these things just charge like four, 40 times as much as they should be charging in terms of cost because people have a lot of discretionary income, at least people who play these things. But it is a very grounding activity to just create something. And that is something that I noticed as a software engineer that always kind of eluded me 
even though we build things that immediately work as software projects, right? We create a website that does what we want it to do, or we write an application or a mobile app or something, and it does the thing. It is not tangible in the same sense that making a table or making a chair or even painting a little miniature is. Like this connection between the eye, the hand, and the physical object of this is, is something that I've never found an equal to in software engineering. And I've written a lot of interesting code solving interesting problems in the hands of people that then could use it to do stuff with it, right? It wasn't about not seeing the impact that it had. It was the lack of tangible reality to grasp, right? It was ungraspable, like the stuff that I was writing. And I felt that in recovering from that, having something tangible, even if it was just a little dwarf or a little orc, that was enough for me to kind of zone out a bit. There's a lot of escapism in here too. So I guess we can sure. also talk about the fact that I probably watched all of the Lord of the Rings extended edition probably 30, 40 times that year. Wow. So, <laughs> all right. Tell me a little bit about uh, the story behind the creation of Feedback Panda. How this story a little bit, but uh, for our audience, let's get into how Danielle found herself in that situation and how you guys determined that you could create a solution based on that. So it started on a snowy hill. I love Danielle it. Danielle sledding down that hill, <laughs> kind of tearing something in her leg. I think we had a bit too much fun to bargaining and that was, that was a problem because it was happening here in Canada and we at that point were still living in Berlin. So we had fun with the family and at some point she complained about pain in her leg or something and we were already back after our Christmas vacation that we usually had here in Canada with Danielle's family back in Berlin and she was at home and she couldn't move anymore. Like she could not move like her leg was unusable was painful every single step she took so she needed something to do from home for a living because danielle was at that point and she kind of still is because how can you unbe something like this and an opera singer right she was a trained musician and a trained musician that is capable of filling a room with like hundreds if not thousands of people and then sing loudly to them cannot perform in a tiny Berlin apartment, right? It just doesn't happen. You can't perform in there. You have to be able to go somewhere to perform, to be able to sing, to make music. So she needed to find something else. At the time I was working like half in Berlin, half in Hamburg, which is two, three hours away by car or by train as a half remote position as a software engineer, because that was kind of one of the perks that came with that particular job was that I could do some part of the work from home and the other part in, in the location in Hamburg, which was an interesting thing. And I highly recommend that for anybody who's looking at remote work at this point, like if you can do both remote work and work in the office, often that is the perfect equilibrium of what you need. Like you have your detached time and then you have the time with other people where you can go to fancy meetings that should have been an email, but you know, like you, you can still interact with people and you can kind of soak in kind of the vibe of certain things. It's hard to do that remotely unless that the company is built for that. But that company was not a purely remote company, but it was also not a purely an office company. And I had the opportunity to work in a half and half. And Danielle was at home all the time and she found online english teaching as a second language like esl teaching through the internet as a as an opportunity because back then that must have been 2016 2017 she just essentially googled like make money from home like we all at some point in our lives probably did and she found in her in her facebook community people talking about 
online English teaching as a potential side gig for somebody who doesn't have enough real musicians gigs. Like that, that was also a community aspect to that. And she figured out, okay, let's just try this out. Let's see how this online English teaching works. And she liked that. It was quite enjoyable and it was adorable to watch. Like her sitting in front of her laptop and there was a Chinese child, like somewhere between four and 10 years old, often not speaking a single word of English. And she would have to, through immersion, teach them English. Like she would like hold up things and point at it and say the English word and the kid would repeat it and they would start talking about it. And over, over time, she would develop these really adorable relationships with these kids that teaching them English through immersion. And for many Chinese kids, that was the only and first ever non-Chinese speaking person they met and online. It was really cute. And it was a lot of dancing, a lot of finger puppets and stuff. It was just wonderful to watch from my desk, which was Berlin apartment right opposite her in the same room. So thank heavens for noise canceling headphones, because if somebody is singing right in front of you for eight hours straight and she's a trained singer, she can do this, right? Not a problem. That can be slightly annoying. And it wasn't because it was just enjoyable but what was annoying was the fact that for each half hour that she taught one of these kids in this really adorable way she would then have in a much less adorable way file student feedback for the parents right she would have to write down today with this child i they learned about the apple and the color red and if you want to like do some practice with that use these three words and all these little things stuff that is important for the parents of the child particular in china but particularly in china there's this kind of you know tiger mom kind of situation where people are very helicopter parents over their child's progress in school because they have to gaokao this kind of big formal university entrance exam and if they don't perform well then they don't get into good universities and so everything these kids do in all of their school time ever is focused on this one test. So there's a lot of pressure on the kids and parents want to know what's going on. So you have to file this student feedback. And not only do you have to file it so the parents know what's going on, you have to file it to be even to get paid for the work that you did teaching the kid. That's how important it was. So she would write it out. It would take I don't know, 10 minutes per student. And if you teach for 10 hours a day, which is 20 students, that's 200 minutes, right? That's like three hours of typing out feedback, which nobody does after work than when they already work for 10 hours. <laughs> 10 hours plus three unpaid, but required to even be paid for the 10 before hours of work. So she quickly found a way to copy and paste certain fragments together because the curriculum was very structured. So you would teach the same lessons to different children, exact same content, exact same student feedback, really. You just have a, she added like, the template and Word and Excel, which you would copy and paste the fragment and then put the name in and all that stuff. And as a software engineer, whenever I see text somewhere and name substitution, I think yeah, this could be automated. So I talked to her and she came up with what she needed. I built a prototype. We gave it to her. It didn't work the way she wanted. So I build a better prototype, how it works in software terms. You just kind of iterate until you find something that works. And as I had been working in software as a service businesses for the decade, really, before that, I knew exactly that this could be a potential 
software as a service business, not just a tool for her, but a tool for other people. So from the start, I built like an authentication system in there, username, password kind of thing. I put a Stripe payment system in there just in case. And we then figured out how to do it right, how to seed it with good templates for people who want to start, how to build a browser extension and all these things. They came later during the journey of the business, but that feedback panda happened because Danielle needed something to cut her three or two hours that she spent in the afternoon unpaid down to a much more manageable size. And the tool we built, like she was, she designed the tool. Essentially, she told me exactly what she wanted, what it was supposed to look like, and I built it was so efficient that it cut these two hours down to five or 10 minutes altogether, often so short that people could do it between lessons, which meant once they were done teaching, they were done with their day, which consequentially gave every single person that used this. And there was already like 7,000 online English teachers at the same school that Danielle was teaching for everybody using this, just really cut two hours of extra work out of their day, which meant people were willing to pay some money for this. And then they did. And then we built a business. And that's the story of Feedback Panda. It was really a, a convenient that she had this problem, which starts all the way with her like, injuring herself, funny enough, on this snowy, snowy hill in Canada. <laughs> I love the way that started for sure. It sounds like it's going to be like a, I don't know, like a little Christmas story or something. Yes. And then it goes downhill fast. <laughs> Literally. And that was right. a problem. <laughs> okay. So while you were building it, it sounds like you didn't necessarily have much of the common stresses that a lot of creators would have where they're building for an audience. You were building the tool for her at first, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. I imagine the stress has really started kicking in when you started trying to get it out into other people's hands and start supporting it. Uh, you tell me, how did that start looking for you as far as, like, when did it start becoming difficult or what was anything that you may have found challenging during that journey? It was always challenging from the moment I understood that we had a, essentially a global audience. Like, it is easy. I've written a couple books in the past years, and it's very easy to sell books because you don't sell them. Amazon sells them, or the Apple audiobook store, whatever that thing is called, they sell it, right? So once I'm done with the book, I seed it into these places and they sell it for me. So I don't have to be there to hand over a copy, a digital copy of my book to someone. Somebody else does this for me. But with a software as a service business, if a customer has a problem with whatever it is, and it's like 10 in the morning for them, but it's one in the morning for you, they expect you to be there. So knowing that we had customers we had, for our, for Feedback Panda, both in Vietnam and in Hawaii and in Massachusetts, and in South Africa, right? And that's just like the first like 20 customers, they were already spread all over the globe. That meant that we had always, we always had this possibility of something happening that we would need to respond to. Essentially customer service duty, right? Any SaaS company has a little chat bubble in their website or a help desk, or you have customer service email that somebody deals with. Doesn't really matter how you do it. The fact that somebody responds to customers' problems. And when I noticed that I was the only person that could solve these problems on many occasions because they were technical, they were not just, oh, how do I enter this kind of data? 
they were like, I tried this and it didn't work. Can you fix this for me? Or, hey, I deleted this, but I didn't want to. Can you restore it for me? Stuff that we didn't, at least early in, in the day of the business, didn't have any kind of functionality for, and I needed to manually solve those problems. I noticed that oof, my availability is like 24-7. I have to be there always, which is it's not necessarily bad because you like what you're doing, but there's always this kind of baseline tension. Whatever you do, you're cooking food, you're having a bath, you're, you're in bed, you're sleeping, whatever you do, there's always the potential of interruption. And you have to respond because this is money, this is a customer. If you don't respond, if you don't help them, the brand will be damaged and the reputation will be damaged. So there's always this underlying level of it's not stress really it's more like an anxiety because you never know when it's gonna happen right so it's an anxious level of stress and that got exacerbated when our hosting provider that we were running our server on was a little german business because i didn't know better at that point i trusted a small local business to run our software when they ran into trouble they had some configuration issues and that meant downtime sometimes hours four days straight where our software was not available which if you own and run a software business, you can't just blame somebody else for their infrastructure problems. You have to own them. You have to tell your mm -hmm. customers, sorry that the prog program is not available for you right now. The reason for it doesn't matter. It's not available. So we are responsible for this. So here's your $10 back for this month. I hope you stick around for next month. That's kind of how we dealt with that. And those problems got so bad that I had to talked to a friend, fortunately, who knew a lot about Kubernetes, like setting up a Kubernetes system to run the software. And in a kind of early morning, because we just couldn't deal with the downtime anymore, little two-hour session, we migrated the whole product over there. And ever since then, it ran flawlessly. But that left a feeling of helplessness in me. Because if you're the only person who could potentially fix this, and then you can't do anything about the problem because somebody else is messing up and you still have to act like you can and you're trying to fix it in front of your at that point thousands of customers it's really the a mix of how many customers we had how little i could do about the problems that we had and how i was the only person that could deal with that that started giving me some kind of anxiety and yeah that that's that has stuck with me until the end until we sold the business and how would you say that anxiety manifested for you during that time? Physically, I up until that point in my life, I never had any stomach problems whatsoever. <laughs> Let's just say that. Never had any heartburn, never had any kind of digestive issues or anything like it. And then I started a SaaS business. <laughs> and ever since then, I, I still have to this day these kind of things. Like I'm reactive to certain foods that I wasn't reactive to before. And I, I had trouble sleeping. I had tr trouble eating certain things, finding calmness. Like I think I, I must probably also have developed some kind of blood pressure issues at that point. There was a lot of physical issues that were very strong when we sold the business and have since receded a little bit, mostly also due to the fact that in having sold the business, a lot of stressors just evaporated and we can talk about this too it literally pays off like to do this and yeah a lot of physical things back then more like stress and anxiety reactions never really a panic attack i don't really recall ever having one but a lot of 
these kind of spirals, thinking spirals, where mm -hmm. you just can't stop thinking about something, even though thinking about it would make it better. That was a lot there too. And also not talking about it was one of my solutions to this. Like I talked to Danielle about it occasionally, obviously her being the, the CEO of our two person business, like she needed to know what was going on, but I didn't really reach out to friends. I didn't, I kind of isolated myself, hoping that I would find the inner strength and motivation to overcome these issues. Something that I now obviously know was a stupid idea, but in, in the trenches, you only see the trenches. It's a very, very common problem. And honestly, part of the reason why I've started this show is because most of us, especially the guys, we have a tendency to keep it to ourselves, not really share it, even sometimes with our spouses or significant others. Uh, it, it just kind of builds up and everybody doesn't know. And you're, you're more often than not, you're thinking, well, I think I'm crazy anyway, because a startup founder and they're like, yeah, well, what do you do? You're like unemployed or something, aren't you? People have these interesting things to say to entrepreneurs. And so we tend to isolate ourselves and often not really reach out to peers, if you will. Uh, did you end up at any point in time before the sale of Feedback Panda, uh, get into any like peer groups or anything like that? Yeah, really not. I... I never even considered it. That was also one of the things that in retrospect, I feel was so unreflected, but it was kind of like driving by the, is that a phrase, driving by the seat of my pants, like trying to like just get on with the workload and the problems that I had, the challenges, the day-to-day -day stuff, that didn't really leave me any time to fun fundamentally reflect on the core sources of the stress and anxiety in my life or any kind of potential therapeutic or just behavioral treatment to this, never thought about it. I think we kind of joked about looking for like a startup therapist, like a couples, a couples therapist, but for co-founders, because it was also occasionally impacting the quality of our non-business relationship, because Danielle and I were a partner partners funny enough that helped us in many ways, but in other ways it was also stressful because we were living in a small place to begin with we were both working from home before we started build, building this business and when we had the business was our lives and there was no distinction between private life personal life and professional life because it was happening in the same space like we had a little room which was the office but it really didn't make much of a difference like obviously you carried your problems into the bedroom which was two rooms over right so it was hard to to manage these kind of professional problems on a professional level, even though we managed to do this by just explicitly saying, I'm talking to you as the co-founder, I'm now not talking to you as your partner, and then complaining, and then now I'm talking as your partner again, let's do something else now, let's go out, let's have an evening out. Uh, with our phones by our sides, because there could always be a problem. I remember, sorry, I'm just gonna throw a couple stories in here. I remember going to play badminton with Danielle, and that was during the, this, this time where our hosting provider had issues. And I, we, we went to play for an hour and I came back into the, the locker room and I looked at my phone and it was like all these downtime notifications and I felt physically clench up because I now had wasted an hour doing something as frivolous as sports with my <laughs> loving partner while I could have like solved this Yet again, not in my capabilities, but still has to be solved problem. It was 
just even thinking about it makes the, the physical sensation come back. And it was very unpleasant and it was very limiting because you're always, you're always looking, glancing at your phone because I had the monitoring system set up so it would call me if there was something that I didn't quickly react to. Looking for that call, right? Like looking for the notification. And that was a, that just, yeah, that, that always kept me in this loop that I couldn't escape. But to answer your question, no. I did not look for any way out of there. I just thought, let's just power through and see where this goes, which then led to the fact that once Trustworth Capital, the people who ended up acquiring us, reached out to us asking if we were selling the business. I was like, yes, please. Yeah. That was honestly my reaction. I was like, yes, let's try to get rid of this. I'm, it's valuable. We were at like 55,000 MRR. Like that was a solid business making $600,000 a year in revenue, which was mostly earnings because it was a well-designed software product that didn't need much in terms of expenses. And we knew how much that would be worth, a couple million at least. So we knew that if we sold now, that would solve all our problems, right? We had no savings because we were living in Dolan where everything is expensive. We were living in an apartment, so we didn't own anything, no, no real estate. We both kind of used the money that came in through our work to fund our lives. And we wanted to very much change that, right? We were both away from our families. It was before the pandemic where people were voluntarily away from their families back in the day, right? We, Danielle moved from Canada to Germany because Germany is better for operatic musicians. There's a, a bigger opera culture there, at least compared to Canada. And she was far away from all her brothers and sisters and mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. So she kind of knew that if we sold the company, we could then probably at some point move and go back home, right? That was always an option. And for me, it was like, hey, I'm wasting money on this life in Berlin and I'm just shut in my apartment, not leaving the place because there's always something that's going on. We knew that selling the business would be helpful more for me than for her. Danielle could have kept it running for months, if not years, because she enjoyed the work. But I told her what emotional state I was in and she was like, okay, let's sell it. Let's try to get the most we can out of it, then get rid of it. Now, before we go into talking about the process of the sale, I'm just real quick curious, did you at any point in time consider hiring other people to take on the work to de-stress? I believe I've heard this answer before, but for the probably audience. Probably should have, right? Yeah, it's, it was such a weird thing. Yeah, and that probably is the biggest mistake I ever made like in my professional career. No, actually, like trying to sell an NFT collection is the biggest thing, I, biggest mistake I ever made. But uh, let me, <laughs> that's also one of the, it's also the funniest mistake I ever made. Uh, one that I do not mind admitting because it was just like a really greedy, stupid move. But not hiring, yeah, not hiring was, a, you were talking earlier about like men in particular not reaching out when they are in emotional turmoil. I think men also have this weird notion that they have to be perfectly capable of doing everything by themselves, particularly in the entrepreneurial space. There's this weird concept of like, it's, if you're not a solopreneur, you're not good enough in some people. And I had that for some reason. I've seen so many successful solo founders that were capable of building these businesses all by themselves that I thought, hey, they didn't need to hire. 
and they are doing well, so I will never need to hire. Obviously, it's really short-term and very limited thinking. And when I talked to Danielle about this, she said, this is stupid. Obviously, if you need help, you should get help, like somebody to do the work for you that you don't want to do. I can see here that you don't want to do these things. Why would you not get anybody to help? And my argument was, since it isn't a full-time position that could be filled with work for this person, we're not going to hire them until there is. What I was saying with this was until I work like 80 hours a week, where I can then split it into 40 for me and 40 for them, I'm never going to hire. As if I had not been a consultant and a contractor for many years before doing hourly work on projects. It's like, where was my mind? Right? Not knowing that I could have had like part-time help or project-based help or retainer-based help. Like all of this was not there. I was like, hey, if there's not enough like for 40 hours of work, we're not going to hire anyone ever. Big mistake, obviously. And when we sold the business at that point, we hired because we had to hire our own replacements. So we helped Shurswift Capital hire people to replace us because we knew best what we were doing. So we helped them find the right person for the job. And all my inhibitions about, oh, hiring is kind of weird or hard or, or freaky or all these things just went right out of the window. It was actually quite enjoyable. And finding somebody to help us was apparently very easy. <laughs> I never knew. Also, the thing, I've never hired before. Like in all the jobs that I had until that point, I was the one being hired. Gotcha. And I never reached a managerial position because I just didn't, I wasn't old enough, I guess, to even be considered for that. But I didn't want to. I wanted to code, right? So I didn't know how to hire. I didn't know how important hiring was. And that was, I think, probably, the, if not the only big contributor to my mental health issues at that point. Because all of these things, my anxiety of having to respond to stuff, and somebody who could help me with this, a second engineer, somebody in a different time zone, right? Who would work while I was asleep. They could help with this immediately, immediately lowering the stress level. Or customer service agent, somebody who would take these many hundreds of messages when somebody broke or something broke and would then only give me one message instead of a hundred that something broke, right? That would already have helped. But yeah, hiring, biggest mistake that I never, never followed through on this, yeah. Tell me a little bit about, obviously, they reached out to you first and said, hey, are you looking to sell? What was the process like for you? Did it take a while? Did you have to go back and forth? Or mm -hmm. was it relatively quick and pain-free by comparison? It was definitely much less complicated than I thought. I felt that the process itself was... Once we were talking to SureSwift Capital, was super easy. And that's probably because they had done it like 24 or something times before us. Like they had gotten all these different other properties that they were already in their portfolio. So they knew exactly how to reach out to a company, how to talk with them, how to negotiate with them, and how to go through all these steps leading up to an acquisition of a business. And we got a couple other interested parties involved because we wanted to make sure that there was actually some some competition going on between all of these potential acquirers. But we ended up going with Shoreswift nonetheless, because they were just the best option in our case, just the most compatible one, also the one that we felt most at home with. We did a lot of due diligence on our side, because I had always heard 
having read the book Built to Sell by John Warlow, I also listened to his podcast, which is about people selling their businesses. And in all the hundreds of episodes that I listened to, I binged them, right? Leading up to the sale of the process, sale of the business, I binged those podcast episodes just day after day, hour after hour, I listened to people talk about how the, what the problems of their, their acquisition process, what they were and what the red flags were and what they were cheated with and all these things. I just listened to that. And then I, I kind of made up my mind that we need to do our own due diligence with this potential acquirer. So we talked to them, give us a list of people that have, you have acquired before we want to talk to those people. And then we made our own little list of people that were not on their list, but we knew they had acquired. And then we just talked to them, right? We did our own buyer side or sorry, seller side due diligence that okay, there were no black, no red flags coming up there, which was awesome. Like we did not expect this. We thought that there must be weird stories somewhere, but all the weirdness that you find is that some people may say, ah, they buy businesses and then they just keep them running, <laughs> which is kind of the idea, right? So it's kind of, that's the idea of a private equity company. There's, they're not there to innovate, they're there to keep and operate. And th that was the max level of criticism that we got, that they bought businesses and then kept them running, something that every entrepreneur wants, which was bizarre. So. We knew it was great to go through with them. And then the process of actually negotiating the price, that's what Danielle did, because she can negotiate. She comes from a family of farmers and a family of people who know how to know how to haggle. I do not. I'm a people pleaser. Like You can haggle me down, like, but I will not haggle, haggle you down. It's the weirdest thing. But she was perfect in that. She got us way more than we initially thought we would get. And the process itself, the process of like, selling the business, getting all the documents in order, doing the whole due diligence process, giving them access to all the things that they needed to see to make sure that the business was okay with them and then handing it over, much less complicated than I ever thought, which is probably a sure swift capital thing because they, like I said, they have done this like dozens of times before. They had a very thought out, very structurally sound checklist document. We go, went through step-by-step step and everything was done and there were no hiccups in all of this process, like no delays, no weird, nothing. It was a really good thing. This sounds like an advertising for sure. <laughs> yeah, Honestly, kind of. it must as well be because they were great. And they obviously, they elevated my life and Danielle's life. Like we're literally, I'm, I'm sitting in the basement of this afforded us, right? And that makes such a big difference. And particularly in times of, COVID and you don't know what's going on in the world yeah. and all of that. I have no anxiety levels. The only levels of stress and anxiety I have right now are when I talk about my previous stress and anxiety levels. Honestly, it comes back up in a certain way, not as present as it was then, but I can feel again what I have fortunately lost. Like those levels are gone, which is great. I mean, there's always stress and anxiousness in, in life and on many levels, but not like that, I can tell you that. And I'd like to take a pause to reflect uh, uh, our sponsors for this episode. Uh, sure, Swift Capital, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> you can All talk right. to Kevin. He probably would love to sponsor this podcast. I know that he cares about mental health issues too, knowing that in, in the company itself, in Sure, Swift Capital, they have a worldwide global network of developers and product managers and customer service people because they all kind of work in different parts of the portfolio, right? So it's a very interesting PE company, a, a, a private equity company with its own developer portfolio. It's really cool in, in a way. 
that something unexpected. I never thought that existed, but it obviously does. And they take care of their employees, particularly now that everybody's remote, right? There's a lot of things that you can't do as you would do in an office setting. So, hey, mental health issues, they care about them too. I might, might just want to reach out to Kevin. <laughs> it kind of sounds to me like the acquisition was a lot of stress lifted for you. Mm -hmm. I do recall hearing you mention that it took a while for you to not have like a trigger reaction every time you hear like a ping because you thought that it was a customer service message for a while, even after you sold to this day. I still still get it. Yeah. I I call this intercom PTSD, Mm. which I think is probably an insult to people who actually have PTSD, but it's uh, particularly because it's not a disorder, right? It's just, memory that I have, but it is traumatic still post-traumatic because in many ways, the sound of this little chat bubble, whenever it happened in, in the rarest cases, was it something good? In most cases, it was, this doesn't work for me, or your website is down, or it was just the email sound that came from the notifications of our, the monitoring system. And when like, bing, when you get emails like this, something is wrong. Mm. And yeah, that's on okay. I have them all turned off. Like I have all email notification sounds turned off, mostly also because I don't care anymore. Like if somebody <laughs> writes me an email, I'll respond to it whenever. I don't care. That's one of the big benefits of having your own media business is kind of what I'm doing right now, right? With my newsletter and my podcast and the YouTube thing and whatnot, I'm in complete control. And even since I have sponsors for all these properties, even if they have a question, it's never really that pressing that I need to respond within a minute, right? It's never, never that important. So that's that sound is very rare so when i hear it it kind of still reminds me of that but i trained myself out of it most of the time so it's if it surprises me then i still get it but most of the time i don't but yes that that made a big impact like a big surprisingly long lasting impact on me so the sale what other things did you do to kind of recover and kind of get your mind and general well-being back on track First thing we did was take a vacation because we hadn't had a vacation in years. And I don't think like tri- tri- trips to visit family count as vacation for anybody, even though family's great, right? Like it's nice, particularly a big family like Danielle's, there's lots of people. There's lots of people here in Canada in our family, but it was always enjoyable, but it was still work, particularly because we took our laptops and our phones with us, obviously. And so the business kind of came with us. And when there was a problem, I needed to be there and needed to do something about it. So that was always, it always came with us. So we, the first thing we did after we sold was to make sure we handed over everything they needed. We helped them hire our replacements and then help them train our replacements, which took not that much time because we had a well-documented and highly automated company, something I highly recommend to everybody building a SaaS because that really makes it super sellable. Once we had that done, we, jumped on a plane and we flew to South Africa from Berlin, which was a nice 12 hour flight straight down. It's really cool. It was in the same time zone even as home. So we didn't have to adjust for that and just took a couple of weeks of safari and like moving through the country vacation, just going to a very different place and just letting everything go, like not responding to anything, not needing to do anything at all. And that was, and it's almost, ironic, right? That was like October or November, 2019. The last two or three months in our lifetime that were normal, 
still, right? Because after that, everything kind of changed. So we had our vacation. We went to South Africa and we came back home. We, I think we, we even went on a little trip to Saxony, my, my home province of Germany. And we just had a, a relaxed time away from the place where the business was, our home. And yeah, I also really didn't do any coding at all. Kind of like after the first burnout situation where I kind of retracted completely and any interest from the field for at least a month or two. But I noticed very quickly that I was falling into this void, this kind of hole of purpose, right? Because we had just given away this business. And even though my stress levels were down and anxiety was now somebody else's, I guess, I don't know. I still felt there was a lot of good things that came with this, right? There was purpose, there was passion that came with the business. I helped these people, these online English teachers using our product, they had more time in a day and they attributed this to me that gave me meaning, that gave my work meaning. And that meaning was gone. And I had given that away with the business to the people who are now operating it. So I kind of fell into this hole where I didn't know what's my purpose, what's my point. So I didn't know for a couple of weeks what to do with myself, played a lot of Warcraft because that's what I always do. World of Warcraft is a constant companion in my life since 2004, but it, it was as escapist as that was, it didn't give me the same kind of passion that I, that I had when I was a like teenager or just fresh out of university or something like that. It's just not the same, right? Once you've found something that is so meaningful, like running your own business, I just, you can't, games won't pick that up. Games won't compensate for that. So I needed to find something else and fortunately found that in writing and in my Twitter community, that was super quick for me. Took much longer for Danielle to find anything. Like for her, it was not just a couple of months, it was years at that point to figure out what she wanted to do. Surprise, she wanted to get back into music, right? Being an entrepreneur was great and she enjoyed it. And maybe you should also talk to her at some point, because that probably would be an interesting perspective too, from a non-technical person and how to deal with these things. And now, yeah, now she's back in music. But for me, it was getting all of my knowledge that I had so intensely accumulated over those many intense years into writing and helping other founders and talking with them. And from the beginning, it was funny that I am your guest on this show because I started my blog with almost the same purpose. My, the tagline of my blog was how to build, run and grow or something, a bootstrapped business without burning out, like without, yeah, that was without burning out. That was always in the, in the thing, the first title cards that I created for this, that was an important part for the whole blog, the bootstrap founder blog to have a, a mental health focus. And I think out of the first 10 articles I wrote, six or seven of them were mental health topics. How to build a SaaS without scaling, how to scale a SaaS without scaling your anxiety. That was one of them. I'm so proud of that stupid title at that point. Then I wrote like three or four different blog posts on different parts of mental health challenges that I had, like the fear of slippery slope, where I think like, here's one problem. What if it's like two problems tomorrow or overly being overly responsive to certain problems, but not others, or overly concerned with particular parts of the software while customers wanted something else. Like all these little distinct issues I wanted to write about. And in the beginning, I wrote a lot about this. And then I figured out many people resonate much more with positive and productive ways of overcoming this instead of just saying that these problems exist. So I kind of switched my tone up in a way, but I still very regularly talk about mental health issues on the blog. 
just because it's an important part of my journey and it's my blog, so I write about whatever I want, right? <laughs> but it's also important because whenever I talk to a founder at some point, usually quite quickly, more quickly than I expect in many cases, we get to this self-doubt and lack of confidence and imposter syndrome, which is such a big thing. Every founder feels that all the time. And the surprising part, I feel it every time as well, every single day, right? And it doesn't matter that I have like, I don't know how many thousands of followers I have on Twitter right now, but it's plenty. And still, whenever I write something, I always feel like, ooh, am I the one who should be writing about this? Isn't there somebody else who knows more about this, who should probably say this before I do? It doesn't go away, right? Mm -hmm. These things, they are so prevalent because they're so wired into our lizard brains, monkey minds, whatever they are, maybe. These topics are so so present with every single creator, every single founder, every maker out there that sooner or later you talk about these things, which is why I talk about them on a regular basis too, because I know people often don't talk about these things again and it doesn't have to you don't have to be a man to be able to feel this right whatever you are whatever you identify with you will also identify with an imposter (laughs) that's probably (laughs) very regular subject for me as a mentor and advisor to startup founders uh, all the time i hear people say what do you do about imposter syndrome Uh, i'll tell them embrace it to be honest with you if you don't have imposter syndrome that's when you really should start worrying because The imposter syndrome is you thinking that you just don't know enough to be teaching somebody else, but that's the best teachers out there, the people who are learning it at that moment, and it's reinstilling it, you're learning it better. Whereas if you don't have imposter syndrome, you basically think you know it all, and there's going to be some biases and all sorts of problems that come with that. Yeah, that that brings very much true of the whole Dunning-Kruger effect, right? The inability to understand that you don't understand, which is not necessarily the same, but you know, it's it's often conflated. And the fact, I think you you phrased it very well, like you, you know that you don't know enough, but that is already knowledge. That's already knowledge, right? That's the and the, what is it, the known unknowns, right? It's not an unknown. It's not a complete ignorance of the thing. It's just that you know that there's more to learn. And I, for myself, I reframe imposter syndrome as the flip side of growth. Like I'm just standing on the precipice and right in front of me is growth. And imposter syndrome is the thing that keeps me from moving towards the growth. Right? It's just uh, something scary. Yeah, new things are scary. That's just how our minds work, right? So I want new things. And my weird, like very animalistic mind is saying, ah, okay, sure, let the mind think that and I will still go there. So I still write and I still record and I still talk about things that I probably don't know enough about. But in working on these things, I learn enough to then be able to overcome this, what I thought I could never overcome. And every day is a little step further, right? It's an iteration on the knowledge. So yeah, I I think embracing it is the best advice because what else can you do? Like cower in front, like cower before it, that's not gonna help, right? I think another good way of framing it too is when you're teaching this stuff that's maybe new to you to someone else, you are in fact learning it more. You are becoming more of an expert on it and then you are therefore more qualified to teach it to somebody else continuously. Yeah, there's an effect in this too, in the kind of learn-teach cycle where you learn something, you teach it, and then somebody mirrors it back to you and you learn something more about the thing itself, which... You, without their feedback, you would have never understood, or at least not in the same thing. That I, it really boils down to getting outside perspective. 
Like getting, putting yourself, it's an empathy, empathy thing, really. It's being able to put yourself into the minds of somebody else and seeing what you're looking at from a different angle, from a different viewpoint, which is why I'm so focused on, on being, trying to be a kind and empathetic person because A, it helps the other people who feel validated, heard, and just friend, you're friendly with them, right? So they feel positively and B on the other side, it helps me getting to what I want, right? It's a both, both a selfish and a selfless thing at the same time. Like I'm there for them, but it's also in, in the consequence, something that comes back to me. It's a very feedback cycle style approach to interacting with people. So, yeah. Your epithetic you approach is very, uh, very seen, very noticed out there <laughs> in Twitter and so forth. You are one of those few people uh, where every time you're out there giving information to people, it's obvious that you're coming from a place of giving and it's not just about yourself or your brand. I don't know of anyone who has ever reflected upon Arvid Call as being a dick. <laughs> so you've got that. Uh-huh. You, everybody loves Arvid as far as I can tell. Thanks. <laughs> And a lot of that comes from the fact that you are so giving within the entrepreneurial and indie hacker community. I know I think I first came across you right around the time that Feedback Panda was sold and you were telling the story around indie mm-hmm. hackers and such like that. I remember that. I think I remember you were one of the first people in on Twitter to DM me with stuff. I think I very strongly remember that. That was like 20, like 19 or something. That's been a while. But yeah, I very distinctly remember that. I've been a big fan of your journey all along. I too am very much focused on founders. And I often like to say that I think that founders and entrepreneurs and innovators are the tip of the spear moving humanity forward. And I feel that if there's any chance for humanity's survival and continued prosperity, it's largely more so in the hands of these folks than even the scientists and the teachers. That's all very important people. But I think Mm -hmm. that humanity is these days very much guided by willpower and the successes of startup founders and entrepreneurs and innovators. And so I feel like after all my years of being involved in this, is the best way for me to give back is to share that knowledge just like you're doing here. So what was that decision like for you to decide? Like, oh, did you want to write first? Was that the idea? Or was it like, I really want to give back what I know towards this community? Or what was going through your mind at that time? So there's one big unfinished article that I wrote. It was probably like a five or 7,000 word article that I wrote while I was running Feedback Panda in the, one of the last couple months. And I wanted to start a blog and I wanted to write about my problems, really. It was it's essentially one gigantic rant about all the little issues that I had. So uh, infrastructure monitoring sucks and I would like this to be different. And here's what I'm trying to do about this. And uh, I have so much anxiety when I talk to, and I hear this noise and like all these things that we talked about, I put them all in one big article, which I never released because we were in the middle of negotiating the price for our business. And Danielle was saying, hey, maybe it's not the best idea to vent about all the things that you don't like about the business <laughs> while we're trying to figure out how much we can sell it for. And I never really, it was a rant right it was for me a a way to to vent my emotional distress onto the page and in some way this was my first contact with journaling because that's really what that was it was maybe more elaborate but it was just taking my thoughts putting them through my hands into whatever medium and then they were in there and my mind was like okay they're gone it helped me to a certain degree to just write about my issues and the issues became less stressful and ever since then Whenever I am stressed, 
which is not that often anymore, but sometimes it still is. I journal, I do like morning pages, which is essentially stream of consciousness writing for the very first thing in the morning, before you get your coffee, before you do whatever, really take two or three pages and write whatever comes to mind. And if nothing comes to mind, write about that, right? It's really getting everything out, every fear you have, every thought that is still swirling around from the day before, put them onto the page, which is essentially creating this blank slate in your mind, and then you start your day. And all of a sudden things become less muddy, less murky, less kind of like touched by whatever happened the day or week before. It's an interesting way of dealing with emotional distress. And that's kind of, that's what I did with that blog post. Never published it, but I noticed that A, I like writing, apparently writing the journaling effect itself, but also the effect of just taking my words that I had in my mind and kind of persisting them into some kind of medium. That was something I've never really done before, particularly since English is not my second language. So it's not my first language, it's my second language. So I had to write in German or think in German, write in English, always complicated, I thought, but it wasn't because it was something that was so clear to me because it was so present in, in my mind at that point. And when we sold the business, the, the writing, oh yeah, but what's the other part of writing is I then had this kind of template, right? I wrote about everything that I wanted to write about and then I read it again. I thought, oh yeah, that's actually a solution to my problem in here because in all my thinking, I wrote the solution out as well. So could you take the solution, implement it? And it was a nice little thinking tool. That was what writing was. When we then sold the business, I was like, what am I going to do now? Where's my passion going to come from? I've been listening all this time. I've been the student all this time. And all these people who have been teaching me, in particular through blogs and podcast appearances, like all these founders who did this in their own spare time, went on shows like yours, talked for a couple hours, and then went right back to work. Like, I wanted to be that person. I wanted to share what I knew, what I had learned in those many years that both Feedback Canada and all the little <laughs> not so successful projects before, all of that knowledge I wanted to give now to people who were in the same boat that I was in a couple of years before. So that's where writing came in. Then I just started the blog. I had the great fortune of being invited as an attendant, attendee speaker at the MicroConf Europe conference with Danielle. The video of that is still on my blog as well. It was the very first time I ever spoke publicly about Feedback Panda. And it was like just a couple of weeks after we had sold it because a, MicroConf Europe is perfect for this. Lots of indie founders there, MicroConf, the whole community, everybody's like a SaaS entrepreneur. And B, Shirtswift Capital was also sponsoring MicroConf Europe. So Kevin was there and more people from the team. So we could actually, for the very first time in our lives, meet the person who had bought our business. <laughs> so it was just perfect. So we went in there, we pitched an, a talk idea about how we sold the business, how we built the business to make it sellable. We had a little talk on stage and that immediately put me on the map. Right, that gave people a name and a face and a story. And then I went to Twitter and I was already kind of part of the community, very passive, but I was, I had like 400 followers at that point, good old days, and not really nothing related to any kind of founder, a couple of software people maybe, but that was it. And then I just started to talk to the people that I met at the conference, that followed them, their followers followed me, and you know how it works, it's kind of cascade of attention, put out my blog, put out a blog post every now and then. Then Cortland invited me on the Indie Hackers podcast, which was great, which was an honor, because I'd listened to that thing for years at this point. Right, that was, I was, what was it, 142, I think is the episode that I was in, and I had listened to every single episode before that. And yeah, from there, I just kind of 
Took if off. I remember correctly, you had posted on Indie Hackers yes. just before that episode. That was like the first time I had read anything from you. And then, so I caught that episode and that was really my introduction to Feedback Panda and you. So you can get an idea how long that's been. Yeah, that is bizarre. We use Indie Hackers quite efficiently. The thing is, Indie Hackers is the reason we sold the business. Because Shortsurfe Capital, the people there, they check Indie Hackers every now and then for interesting SaaS products. And we had Feedback Panda on there because as an Indie Hacker, before I thought, let's just put it on and just like show that we're working on this. Maybe some somebody's interested in it, not to acquire, but just other indie hackers talk to me about my business. Kind of cool. So we had Feedback Panda as a product on indie hackers, and we had our Stripe data, verified Stripe data, linked to that, nice. so people could see what the MRR was. And since our business was growing so well, it was just a really a very straight line up and to the right, which is highly attractive to anybody who wants to buy properties, SaaS properties, and then keep growing them, right? So that attracted SureSwift, and then SureSwift talked to us, and then, yeah, all of Cascade selling the business and getting the publicity at the conference and then talking to Cortland and that. It was, that's kind of how all of this fell, fell into place. Started, Danielle had mid- I think a year after we, we started the business, we were at 20 some thousand, maybe 25,000 MRR. Cortland reached out to Danielle via an email and they had an interview, an email-based interview that should still be on there too on Indie Hackers where she, for the first time, talked about the business from her perspective as the, the CEO. And then I talked to her and said, hey, I really want to be on that show one, one day. <laughs> She's like, sure. <laughs> and then I kind of, I got the next one. I got the radio version, but it was, yeah, it was an amazing story. And we had a lot of, in, right after that, after we sold, we had a lot of really cool podcast appearances. I even got on John Borlo's show. I talked to him about him earlier, right? He's, he wrote the book Built to Sell, which like no other book impacted my understanding of how to build a sellable business. And then to be able to talk to the guy who had taught me these things that allowed me then to sell the business so I could have a good story to talk to him about was just amazing. And it's for some reason, circle. he also lives in Canada. It's an amazing circle. And I still can't believe how fortunate I was in all of these ways, right? To have met Danielle, to have her like me enough to move in with me. Right? Like all these things, there are so many things that could not have happened, but did. And which is kind of, we talk about luck a lot in, in, in entrepreneurship, right? And is there luck or is there skill? The answer is yes. That's <laughs> the right. answer I can give. Because of course there's luck and the skill to use it, right? It's Right. You can't get anywhere with just luck. And yeah. it, you listen to any founder story, any podcast on the founder story or a startup story, there will inevitably be that one moment. And it's like, oh yeah. And then we had like a viral moment and you just yeah. keep going. And it's like, oh yeah. yeah. So you did have some luck, yes. but it's yeah. Being able to recognize it and embrace it and having the skill to deal with it is definitely a big part of it. But it also sounds to me like you, you have the capacity to utilize gratitude quite a bit. Yeah, gratitude is central. Like it's one of those practices that I have always kind of done because I'm just a genuinely thankful person. Like I sometimes I I catch myself just looking at the sky, and this might sound quite cheesy, but just feeling in awe of existence itself. Like I'm just grateful to be here to be able to witness these things. I see a squirrel and I almost break out in tears because nature is awesome. I mean, these are the, these moments that I feel and. 
uh, now I have a means to to kind of transport that something that is then beneficial to others and being grateful to, for other founders sharing their successes, sharing their journeys, sharing their not so much successes and, and encouraging people through gratitude. That's something that I use quite a lot because I can see how it impacts people and how it makes them want to do more, want to do better because they see so few, so little gratitude from other sources that they really gobble it up. <laughs> it's sure. like being nice and kind to people who are not used to other people being nice and kind to them can change their lives in the best way possible. I'm sure you've seen that in a lot of ways where you have people who started off as maybe a bootstrapped entrepreneur subscriber. And then the next thing you know, they've uh, bought both of your books and they're taking your course and yeah. wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> but... Uh, so before, now I know that uh, shortly thereafter, Dom released uh, Mentor Cruise and I saw you join. On. Yeah. I was curious, what's your relationship with like mentors prior to that? Did you ever have any mentors or did you just decide at that point, hey, I want to help an indie hacker and I also find this to serve my need to help other founders. What was that all about for you? That's kind of why I did that. And I had like four or five mentees at the same time, which was quite a lot. I can tell you that was a bit much, but I really wanted to do some hands-on stuff. Like I wanted to be part of hands-on business experience without having to do the hands-on business experience. It's kind of how it felt at that moment. I was glad to not have to commit like to actually building the business, but I was willing to commit to helping somebody for like half a year or something, which was kind of how long this lasted this phase. And I never had mentors before, not in a strict sense that somebody would be explicitly considered themselves to be my mentor. I had people who were better than I was teaching me what they did. And I had people like sharing their knowledge with me, but never in, a, in an intentional or directional or even kind of structured way. So mentorship was new to me as both a mentee and a mentor. And I very much enjoyed, I know what consulting was, right? I knew how to consult. I knew how to get people to, to reflect in front of me and talk about things so I could figure out where their problems were that they were seeing, that they were not seeing, and then kind of guide them towards just essentially solving their own problems. And I kind of used that in, in, in mentorship as well. And through Mentor Cruise, which is an amazing platform that I'm kind of considering going back to because I'm just excited to be part of a project again, like following somebody along their journey. But I, back then, it was a novel experience for me that I didn't really know how to do well, but I learned how to do it and just having the mentees tell me what they needed, which worked for some and didn't work for others, but that was, you know, how it is. Everything is kind of an experiment. But I made a couple really interesting connections there, met some amazing people that I'm still very much in touch with. And it's just generally exciting to help somebody intentionally. Yeah. That, that I feel on Twitter, I can help very broadly, right? I can share, I can write about something, I can share, and then I hope that there are a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand people who need this. And some of them might need it right now. Some of them might need it a couple of years from now, but I, they know it's there and that's good enough for me. With a mentor role, being there and helping people with specific problems in specific ways, that is very different and equally enjoyable, but also takes a different level of attention. And sure. which is probably why I'm not doing it right now, because in all of the things that I wanted to do after we sold the business, I had, I think two, two big rules. One of them was I want to build something that allows me to have an empty calendar 
is in the rule number one, like empty, no, nothing in there. And the other one, I don't want to use an alarm in the morning. Two rules, right? Empty calendar, no alarm clock. And this week, pull it up. My calendar has you in it. And that's it. That Way is, to go. That is kind of, that's where I want to be. And I did not use an alarm because you kindly <laughs> took a time slot today. That was not early in the morning. Like that's kind of what I optimized for. And anything that is very focused on something else uh, or uh, doesn't allow me to have these things doesn't get done as much anymore. It's really like with an empty calendar comes a lot of time that I could spend on this, but I also like to like write my things and think about what I could do and paint my miniatures. Like my hobby is still there and I spend time with my puppy, like all these things that I'm doing, but I have this urge to, to be like directly involved in something too. So I might just also take a day and a week at some point, a week, weekly day for, for mentorship. Man, it was nice. Like Dom sent us really nice hats. We got like men, mentor cruise hats, which was cool. Like swag that we regularly wear. Hey, so hey, Dom, I'm still waiting for my hat. <laughs> okay. Good hats. <laughs> yeah, I'm a hat guy. In fact, I'm wearing my on deck yeah. hat at the moment that I got from winning one of the global build weekend contests from on deck. Yeah. All right. Uh, speaking of like routines, you're talking about how daily you don't get up with an alarm clock. I, I completely relate to that. I love the, the fact that I can get up with the sunset is just amazing for me. Mm-hmm. What other kind of practices or parts of your daily routine have you incorporated, whether after Feedback Panda or not, that you find are helpful for you to be able to maintain focus and well-being, stuff that you think may be useful for our audience? Time blocking has been one of the things that is that has made a big difference in my life. So both on a per week basis and on a daily basis, like I used to spend many hours a day on Twitter, like every now and then on off, it's always on, it's always open, right? And if something happens, I would be responsive or just like passive kind of in a way, just waiting for things to happen. I now use a morning time block and an evening time block for these things like two hours in the morning, two, two hours in the evening, still a lot of time on Twitter, but that's kind of my medium where I'm at most and anything in between is time for other things. So it leaves me a lot of free time during the day where I know I'm not going to distract myself with Twitter or I don't have to, I still can, but I don't have to. And over the week, that also means that I need a, week, a weekday structure to get to my, my, my weekly goals. So I have my Monday as my writing day, Tuesday is like, writing for other things maybe if i haven't finished on monday but still need to edit maybe the text or add a couple more things couple examples couple rewrites or something that's my tuesday wednesday i don't do much in terms of work i spend it with other things it's kind of an off day thursday is my recording day that i record my podcast on video and audio i edit it and i schedule it and then friday is my content day where everything goes out, my newsletter, podcast, whatever. And then I do, I essentially advertise my content on Twitter and set up like automated retweets of whatever I need to retweet over the next week. And then I have a weekend on which I don't work because that's kind of the point, right? So we spend a lot of time, both Daniel and I, doing stuff with the family, hanging out with a pup and cleaning the house, things you need to do. But yeah, it's a very structured, a structured week and a day that is kind of framed by social media w- without having to do it in the middle, which is really doing in the beginning and the end of the day. That gave me a lot of clarity because I know what time and day I do what, right? Mm-hmm. That makes a big difference. 
And it still gives me a lot of optionality because I can still do whatever I want because it's my schedule. It's not somebody else's. And if, if one day I can't do anything or I have an appointment, then I can easily shift it around. So that's kind of useful. I love that you've got it down to writing primarily one day a week. It's the mm -hmm. antithesis of what everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. Everyone is usually going for the Jerry Seinfeld approach, which is you don't break the chain. You got to write mm -hmm. every day, that kind of thing. I would lose my mind. I'm the same way. I'm working on a book. It's actually about these kinds of things, you know, mm -hmm. how to build a daily system for mm -hmm. high performers, basically. And if I had to write every day, it would actually take me much longer because I would have so many frustrating times where I can't do this. But instead, I sit down usually one day a week for three, four hours and just yep. bang out a chapter or two. So that's cool. And then it kind of validates that I'm not crazy doing that. <laughs> no, I think it's a perfectly sane approach. And the thing is with a writer, right? A, a writer always writes. It's just that you don't type all the time. Right? It's not that your mind can turn off you thinking about the things that you want to write about. Like I write when I'm in the shower. Or I write when I'm out, like walking the dog. It's just that I'm not writing down. I'm just writing in my mind. I'm like reframing ideas into new potential concepts, or I have an idea of how to phrase a certain thing and it sticks with me or it doesn't stick with me. Like that, right? That is also writing. And I know that in, in certain kind of industries, like if you write fiction, it's probably a different story. Like if you need to create bulk and you write with an outline. I'm kind of working on that. I'm trying to become a fiction writer, which is weird because I've never done that before either, but I'm interested in it because I, I want to write sci-fi and stuff. But I, people in that field, they have a different writing routine because it's not as much about impactful, dense writing that we need to do as nonfiction writers. It's more about prosaic and descriptive writing, which mm. takes a, a different approach, right? And what was it like if you talk to a, or if you read the writers of the past that wrote every day, the successful ones like Hemingway or something, yeah, you, you can get into this, oh, I probably have to do it myself kind of spiral, right? If they did it, I need to do it, but hey, whatever works for you. I think once a week or like one or two days a week, it's the maximum that I can do unless I'm writing a book, which sometimes can, like I, I do spurts. Like I do, I write for five days in a row and then I take a week off. I guess like there, there is no, no silver bullet, just what works in that moment. Speaking of which, uh, and speaking of Hemingway for that matter, there's this expression that he had, kill your darlings. I know mm. that when you first wrote uh, Zero to Soul, that this was like a pretty massive volume and you had to really mm. bring it down. How stressful was that for you, <laughs> killing your darlings? Oh man, it just reminds me of George R.R. R. Martin and the whole like Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones book where he literally kills his darlings. No, for nonfiction like, like Zero to Soul, I had the great fortune of having an editor who would kill them for me. So I essentially hired an assassin, right? That's what <laughs> I, I had, I written like six, 600 pages worth of material and she cut it down to five, 500, which meant that like six, 18 or 16 point whatever percent of my book were gone. And that was unfortunate because I thought these parts were also important, but she figured out they didn't need to be. And it, it was hard, but I completely forgot a couple months later that these things were even in there. I, only recently, actually, I dug these things out and I created a little PDF file, which I think called, was it the lost, the lost stories or something like zero to salt the last chapters. <laughs> and I, this is now available for anybody who recommends my newsletter to one 
additional person that can be used <laughs> for a newsletter referral system. So if you want to have access to the chapters that didn't make it, just subscribe to my newsletter and find one other person that that wants to read my newsletter and you get access to it. It's kind of done through Sparkloop, which is a really nice little referral SaaS, also by another indie founder, by Louis Nichols. And and more, obviously, it's not done, done it alone. But I, it was hard to accept. But what actually what was much harder to accept was the four thousand corrections that came back from the proofreader. <laughs> like <laughs> when you think you're good at writing and you already use tools like Grammarly and Hemingways, there's also an app, right? There's a writing mm -hmm. app that kind of checks the quality and readability of your sentences. When you use these tools to write your book. And then an editor and a proofreader, both of which came back with over 3,000 different corrections for the book. That was interesting. I mean, that was, a, that was an experience of humility, like where I knew, oh, I guess that is different. Like these people certainly don't hold back, but it's about quality. And the book that came out, I think, was it was absolutely worth taking out the parts that didn't need to be in there. And was absolutely worth going through each of these corrections and accepting most of them. <laughs> gotcha. As we get closer to the end of this episode, I was curious if you had any like sources of uh, inspiration that you'd like to share, whether that be thought leaders, books, or anything. Honestly, I on Twitter, I think I follow fourteen thousand people. So let me just read this list to you <laughs> casually. The thing is, everybody benefits from following people who are on the same journey as they are. I think we, we talked about peers earlier, right? Like finding people around you that have the same struggle, like peer groups and help having them help you with your problems and you help them with theirs. There's no better way than just looking on Twitter for people that are building in public, that are sharing their journey, that are in a similar stage that you are. Maybe they just started their business or maybe they haven't started their business. They're trying to figure it out. They're going through the validation steps and trying to get to a point where they can actually do something with the business. Finding the people around you, I think, is much more interesting than looking only for influencers or thought leaders or successful people because you'll find them anyway. Right. You just really look at the most popular podcasts in the indie hacking entrepreneur space and you'll find all these impactful and highly connected people like Cortland and Cortlandown and Rob Walling and the lots of people that have highly connected audiences and stuff. But what's more important, I think, is figuring out who is building just like you or who is maybe a couple weeks ahead of you. On that journey you learn more from the mistakes they make than from having somebody talk about some obscure problem that their million dollar SaaS has in the 12th year of its existence right doesn't really matter much for you and in that regard i think following people who are building in public should also motivate you to build your own journey in public to share your own journey to be part of this trend of being open and transparent about your own process, your decisions, your ups and your downs. A, it helps you feel validated in what you're doing if other people are looking at what you're doing and commenting and helping you. And B, it also gives you an opportunity to talk about the negative stuff much earlier than if you were never talking about it, right? If something doesn't work, and you share it and you say, it really sucks. We had a lead and we had this conversation and then they didn't sign. That is 
that sucks. And I wish I could have gotten this customer. And somebody says, yeah, happened to me too. That's really unfortunate, but hey, maybe it wasn't a good fit. Sometimes you, that's all you need to hear. Sometimes at that moment, it just pulls you out of this loop, right? This negativity, wallowing in your own misery, just seeing, yep, other people are having these problems too. They also find them to be really bad. And now we just keep going. On that note, uh, as building public has become a trend, any tips or advice for those who find the idea hard to approach or are just getting started on their building public journey? Yeah, I think one of the most important things about all of this is that you are in complete control of how much and what you share, right? You've always been. In, in regular marketing, people only shared like these fictions fictitious stories of how amazing everything is. Like if you look at an ad, all ads try to convince you that this is the best product ever. Building in public is more about sharing a journey through like teaching what you learn with your peers and being honest. It builds an authentic personal brand and a professional brand. And what you share is always up to you. And if you share the good and the bad, people will trust you more easily and more truthfully because you are like a real human being with ups and downs. So con consider that it's worth sharing the good and the bad, but if it's so bad or so good that you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to. I feel a lot of people think that building public means sharing everything, which it is not. Right. It can be curated. You can like have your own limits. You have your own restrictions of what you share, what, how you talk about certain things. That's perfectly fine. What usually is a good idea is to talk about like, what did you want to do and what did you get done? That's a good start for anybody building in public. Right. Today I wanted to build a feature like password reset for my login window. And I got it. I got halfway done. I still need to spend a couple hours on this tomorrow. Already interesting. And maybe somebody, hopefully not me, but I could say the same. Why are you building a login system? <laughs> Couldn't you just use something that people already built? And then you have a conversation about the meaning of building important things yourself and so on, right? There is a, the potential for an interesting conversation starts even with mundane things as today I built a password reset system. You never know. Maybe that's the second thing that I really want to say here. You never know what conversation, what opportunity, what connection, what potential business deal might come from any single thing you share. Maybe you say, oh, I have no idea how to solve this problem. And all of a sudden, somebody's waking up on the other side of the planet, reads your message and says, hey, this is something I can help them with. And then they help you. And like two weeks later, they're your co-founder or something like that. You never know unless you are proactive and you talk about the things that are important to you, that matter to you. I agree. We uh, know where you've been. Now, where are you headed? What are you interested in getting into these days or what are you working on right now? I found that writing one thing a week, putting it out as a blog post, a newsletter, recording it as a podcast episode and a YouTube video is exactly where I want to be right now. Fantastic. I, I, I have a backlog of ideas and topics that I want to talk about that is like hundreds of lines long. So I know that for the next two or three years, I have enough content to talk about and it's just the right pace, right? I, like I said, I have a little puppy that I want to take care of because I'm essentially the, the person at home and I need to bear it. You might've heard her. Like she was whimpering in the background a couple of times over, throughout this conversation, but I have a setup that has a good noise gate. So you probably didn't, but the, I want to be able to be there for my family, for my friends. I want to be able to 
be there for my community, for my the founders around me that I want to be able to help them. I spend a lot of time in Twitter DMs just helping people with their problems. You don't really see that, but you're also not supposed to, right? It's something that I just do because I enjoy it. And then I want to build something every week that increases the potential for people to find me. It increases the long tail of the content, the traces that I leave. That every single week, I want to put one more trace out there. Some kind of crumble of evidence that I have something to say that people might find interesting. And this I can keep doing. I feel like, you know what? I'm sitting here in an unfinished basement. The only problem that I have in my life is that there's a lot of echo in this basement. That's my problem. Like, I really just need to finish my basement. Then all of a sudden I could build an amazing studio and like have an even higher quality recording. And for that, I don't even need to leave my basement. That's where I'm at. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing and get better at it every single day. So you have your original book, Zero to Sold, which is fantastic. I highly recommend this to anybody who is just getting started or already started in your entrepreneur journey. And then more recently, The Embedded Entrepreneur. I know that you have this uh, your course out there as well. Do you have any plans for any other books in the near future besides the fiction, which I wish you the best of luck on? Yeah, thanks. I'm Over the last couple of weeks or months, really, I've been writing a series on calm companies, calm SaaS companies, right? Like how to, what calm company is, what a calm SaaS company is, how to do, how the infrastructure of one looks like, what the market analysis or product dis problem discovery looks like. I think I have like three or four more sections to go. And then I have something. I don't know what that actually is. Like I, uh, That's how far I've thought this through. I'm just going to write it. And then I'm going to see if it's a book or if it's a course or if it's a video or I don't know. <laughs> I, but I know that the content is there. And whatever shape it will eventually take, it probably will be an info product of some sort, book or course or whatever in between, because it's already there and it is a coherent unit. So might just as well. But as you can tell, I don't really have clear plans. <laughs> I just do things. And as they come up, they kind of manifest into something else. And I've driven pretty well with this particular approach over the last couple of years. Zero to Sold happened by mistake. Like I was just writing blog posts and somebody told me, hey, I would read this as a book, I guess. And then I wrote the book and that's kind of how that happened. So I'm just throwing stuff out there and I see where it lands and what shape it takes. All right. So one last little tip question for the audience. Can you think of anything watch out for to prevent burnout or to help with focus or to avoid depression or whatever it is in a founder's journey that you think that you have? Like I, I kind of mentioned earlier that I had conversations with Danielle while I was already experiencing my symptoms and my, my stress and anxiety levels were quite high and we were talking about hiring. And she said, we need to hire, you need to hire. You look like somebody who needs help. And then I came up with my weird 40 hours only is the only shape of work that I know thought that was weird. I didn't listen to her. And there were many reasons that, for that, like my own hubris, my own admittedly wildly overestimated or overinflated ego and many things. But when somebody tells you, somebody you love, somebody who loves you more importantly, that you need help in any way, right? Psychologically or professionally, or just a different perspective, take that seriously. If people see you struggle, 
and they take they already take the potential reputation hit of telling you that you're doing something wrong people don't like to say this people don't like to hear this right so if somebody is honest enough with you to tell you that is not malice and it's not incompetence it's a willingness to make you your life better and our parents do this all the time right they have these weird notions of how we should live our lives and what we should do and it comes from the heart and often it's very non-realistic particularly now if you have parents who don't understand what the internet is right but the economy in which we operate how that works that's something different but when a peer in like a, a direct partner or a, a friend a colleague whoever who understands the things you're trying to do and the things you're trying to accomplish and how you work, how you were, how you are. And if they see a difference there and they talk to you about it, take that seriously and try to not dismiss it as, as I did, as something that oh, they just don't understand. They understand better, maybe better than you. And maybe that's the ego speaking at that point, or your kind of protective inner monologue that you have, right? The thing that narrates your own life. That is just one voice. That is one thing I learned from Eckhart Tolle, the admittedly esoteric kind of guru, if whatever you want to call him, but he has this very interesting way of talking about yourself talk, how you talk to yourself. And when I read his books, I read a couple of them because I was just trying to understand that particular part of my life better. I learned that he says it's your inner voice is just a voice. It's just a part of your brain talking to itself and you as the agent of your brain, as the thing and the being that kind of takes all of these voices and acts on them, you have the chance to ignore what that voice is saying. Your inner monologue is not, you are the thing that listens to it. That was the thing that he said that blew my mind when I heard that, right? That your self talk is not you talking you are the thing that's listening to this. So you can choose to listen and ignore. You can also choose to listen and act on it. And that agency rests with you alone. And if you tell yourself, nah, I'm totally fine. That is just you listening to yourself, telling yourself that you're fine. And then you can choose to actually say, no, I'm not. Right? I hear you, weird inner voice, you're wrong. <laughs> and then you can do something about it. This kind of meandered into the weird, but I think that perspective alone, that you are the voice that listens, not the voice that speaks, that might help somebody, hopefully. Very good. Well, thank you very much. That's a definitely an original contribution right there. I love it. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today, and uh, it means the world to me. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Where can the audience learn more about you and uh, books and what you're doing at any given time? I spend 30 hours a day on Twitter, so you might just as well follow me there. Yeah, it's A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L on Twitter, but, and my DMs are open. So if anybody has business questions, obviously I'm going to respond. But if you have mental health questions, like anything, any problems in your business that you can't talk to anybody else about or you don't want to talk to anybody else about, just write to me and I, I'm going to try to either find somebody you should be actually talking to or I'm going to give you my opinion on this. So Twitter is always a good way to reach me. Very good. Thanks again, Arvid. Really appreciate you. And I hope you do enjoy the rest of your day. We'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Greg. It was really nice talking to you. Are you enjoying the Startup Zen Show? You can show your support by leaving a review on Apple. And be sure to follow and engage on Twitter at Startup Zen Show. As always, thank you for listening. Come back for new episodes every week. In the meantime, keep on creating a better world. But remember to take care of yourself, too.